Well, hey, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you here this morning. I hope you're having a good weekend so far. Uh, I opened my back door this morning to let my dog out, and I saw a little bit of some dead crumpled leaves on the porch, and I got real excited because it was like, all right, fall is coming, right? Football season next week. Anybody excited? But we are almost at the end of our journey in 2 Kings, but uh, we're not quite there yet, and so that's where we'll be this morning. Um, But before we dive in, let me open us up with a word of prayer and just invite the Lord into our time, invite the Spirit to come and to shape our hearts and to mold us more into the image of the Lord Jesus. And so pray with me. Father, we give this morning to you. We thank you that your presence is already here. Thank you that the word says where two or three are gathered in your name, you are there in their midst. And so, Father, we do pray as we come around your word this morning, thank you that all scripture is God-breathed that it's profitable for teaching, uh, correction, rebuke, and training in righteousness. And so we pray that your word would do that this morning. Thank you that your word does not return void, that it does accomplish all that you have for it. And so give us uh, eyes to see this morning, ears to hear, and hearts to know and to obey you. And I pray this in your son's name. Amen. Well, one of the more chilling and disturbing uh, firsthand accounts of the Holocaust is no doubt uh, Elie Wiesel's memoir, Night. I remember reading it quite a few years ago back in my college days in my early 20s, and it's not a huge book, probably just a little over 100 pages, but even though it's small, its broader impact has been huge, and it certainly impacted me at some level. And this week, my wife and I were talking about it, and she uh, reminded me of the opening chapter, which talks about this really eccentric man named Moshi the Beetle. Now, Moshi was certainly weird and odd, but he was also very kind. Um, For example, early on in the book, uh, it talks about how Moshi goes out of his way in order to tutor Elie Wiesel. But then shortly after that, the Hungarian police decide to expel all the foreign Jews uh, from the city of Seget, where Moshe and Wiesel lived. And since Moshe the Beetle was actually a foreign Jew living there, he, along with many others, were packed into train cars like cattle and shipped out of the country. Well, from there, Wiesel describes that life kind of moves on for the people of Seget, But then one day, out of nowhere, Moshe the Beetle shows back up, limping into town. And he begins to go door to door to tell the Jews his story of what happened to him and to warn them to leave Seget. And basically what happened to Moshe was that after he was put on that train in Seget, he, along with the other foreign Jews with him, were taken by train into Poland at which point the Gestapo took over the train and they immediately forced all the Jews to get out to begin digging their own graves with shovels. And then once the graves were dug, they started shooting them. Now Moshe was shot in the leg and was left for dead, but he miraculously managed to stay alive. And and maybe even more miraculously, he made his way all the way back to Seget in order to warn everyone of what the Nazis were doing. And so for many weeks and months, Moshe went around town with tears in his eyes, telling the people his story and begging them to wake up to what was happening in Europe with the Nazis and to leave town while while they still had a chance. Well, needless to say, nobody really listened to him or believed what he was saying was true. In fact, most people thought he was not just annoying, but really nuts. 
And because of that, they ignored him and the warning that he gave. Well, the story continues on, and Wiesel writes that life once again kind of goes back to normal in Siget. Eventually, even Moshe shuts up, and he quits talking about his experience, and he stops warning the people. But then one day, about a year or so later, in 1944, the town finds out that the Germans have actually invaded Hungary. And at first, they're a little bit scared about this news, but then they kind of comfort themselves by telling each other, you know what, there's no way the Germans will come this far. I'm sure that they'll just stay in Budapest, right? Like, why would they come to little old Siget? Well, just three days later, German soldiers arrive in Siget, and at first, the people are still kind of upbeat and optimistic about it. Wiesel even has this line in the book where he says, the Germans were already in our town. The fascists were already in power. The verdict was already out, and the Jews of Siget were still smiling. Well, not long after that, the Germans issued their first edict, which was that the Jews were unable to leave their home for three days under penalty of death. And right after this edict was announced, Wiesel writes that Moshe the Beetle came running into his house shouting, I warned you. And then he left without a response. Well, after that, things pick up quickly. First, the Jews, as you might uh, know from just any experience with how they did things, they first start making them wear a yellow star to signify that they were Jewish. Then after that, they put in a strict curfew and banned uh, the, uh, the Jews from certain restaurants and cafes. Soon they were forced to leave their homes and move into these uh, fenced-in ghettos where they were isolated from the rest of the town. And then finally, the chapter uh, ends with all the Jews of Seget getting on trains like cattle in order to be carted off to Auschwitz, where many of them would ultimately die. And again, it's a hard book to read. It's, it's hard even to, to talk about it here right now. And it's a, certainly a disturbing firsthand account of what happened during the Holocaust. But the thing about it that struck me this week is the fact that somebody came and warned them of what was going to happen, but in the end, they refused to listen to him. Moshe cried out and he warned them and he begged them to listen to him and to respond accordingly, but the people of Seget did not. And what we're going to see in our story today is that Israel, too, refused to listen to Yahweh's word and to heed his warnings and the warnings of his prophets. And as a result, they, too, were taken from their homes and carted off to another nation. And so if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up now to 2 Kings chapter 15. Um, we're actually going to try to cover chapters 15, 16, and 17 um, if you need to borrow a Bible, you can grab one under the chair, and then the passage is found on page uh, 321. And we're going to look at a lot of verses today, and I didn't give them all to the PowerPoint, and so you may find it helpful to have a Bible in your hand to follow along. Now, just like a couple of weeks ago, I don't really have an outline this morning other than to walk us through each of these three chapters and then drawing out some lessons at the end that I think you and I can learn. And so let's jump in here now uh, in chapter 15, starting... In verse 1, we read this. In the 27th year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, Azariah, the son of Amaziah, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 16 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jecoli of Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that his father Amaziah had done. Nevertheless, 
the high places were not taken away. The people still sacrificed and made offerings on the high places. And the Lord touched the king so that he was a leper to the day of his death. And he lived in a separate house. And Jotham, the king's son, was over the household, governing the people of the land. Okay, so our first story here, starting out in chapter 15, is one of uh, Judah's kings in the south, a man by the name of Azariah. Now, as we've told you uh, for multiple weeks now, the king's names in this book are a nightmare to try to keep up with, right? Like, not only are they hard to spell, hard to pronounce, but as we pointed out the last couple of weeks, multiple times, both Israel and Judah have kings with the same exact name. And then if that weren't bad enough or confusing enough, here, this guy we just read about, King Ahaziah, or Azariah, apparently he has another name he sometimes goes by, which maybe you're more familiar with because of the book of Isaiah, and that is the name Uzziah. In fact, even later on in this chapter, in verse 13, the author switches and calls him King Uzziah. And so, again, it's a little confusing, but bottom line, Azariah and Uzziah are the same guy. Now, in terms of King Azariah or Uzziah, whatever you prefer, uh, we're told here that he reigns for 52 years, which is a long time here in Judah. And it tells us that he did right in the eyes of the Lord like his father. But then verse 4 gives us a really important qualifier. It says, nevertheless, the high places were not removed and the people continued to sacrifice and make offerings on the high places. In other words, what that's telling us is that King Azariah tolerated pagan worship inside of Judah, which unfortunately, he's not the only one who does that because as we've seen, quite a few of Judah's kings do the same thing. However, though, it does give us, it gets a little bit worse than that. Because then in verse five, we are given another detail about his life without a lot of explanation or context. And all it tells us there is that Yahweh touched the king, or another translation says Yahweh afflicted the king so that he was a leper. And because he was a leper, he had to live in a separate house until the day of his death. Now, fortunately for us, the Bible does give us some more information about this particular incident in the book of 2 Chronicles. And what we find out in 2 Chronicles chapter 26 is that God had been blessing King Uzziah with various military victories. And as a result, Uzziah begins to get kind of a big head. He gets proud. He becomes arrogant. And therefore, he starts to act and to rule uh, as if the rules don't apply to him anymore. And what we find out is it says this in verse 16 of 2 Chronicles 26. But when he, Uzziah, was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. For he was unfaithful to the Lord his God, and he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. But Azariah the priest went in after him with 80 priests of the Lord who were men of valor. And they withstood King Uzziah, and they said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Go out of the sanctuary, for you have done wrong, and it will bring you no honor from the Lord God. Then Uzziah was angry. Now, he had a censer in his hand to burn incense. And when he became angry with the priest, leprosy broke out on his forehead in the presence of the priest in the house of the Lord by the altar of incense. Now, this story not only explains why he was struck with leprosy, namely because he was proud and he tried to act like a priest when he wasn't. 
But it probably also explains why he's called Uzziah sometimes instead of Azariah, because as we just saw here, the chief priest's name during this, time's name, uh, during this time period's name was Azariah. And clearly it would be confusing to have two Azariahs in one story. But again, the point here that we see is this, Uzziah is a mixed bag. On the one hand, we're told he does what is right in the eyes of the Lord, and on the other hand, we find out he is prideful and breaks the rules, and ultimately, he does not rid the land of idolatrous worship. However, though, as we're about to see, he looks pretty good, actually, and he certainly looks stable when you compare him to what is going on with the kings in Israel. In fact, verses 8 through 31 of this chapter switch from Israel over to Judah. I mean, from Judah over to Israel. And what we see there in those verses is coup after coup, assassination after assassination. It's as if the narrator hits the fast forward button on Israel's history. It's a little bit like if you're watching a movie and all of a sudden it gets really bloody and violent and you're like, you know what, let me just skip a couple scenes here. That's essentially what's happening. You see, in verses 8 to 12, we're told that a guy named Zechariah begins to reign. And Zechariah is the fourth and final generation of Jehu's descendants to reign on Israel's throne. And if you remember from two weeks ago, when we looked at Jehu, after he stages his own coup and assassinates all of Ahab's family, God promises him that his family will sit on the throne up to four generations. And the indication you get there is that it could be uh, even longer if Jehu and his descendants follow Yahweh. And yet, as we saw over the last couple of weeks, neither Jehu himself or his descendants after him do that. And so again, Zechariah is now the fourth one to sit on the throne. He comes to power, we are told. He very clearly does what is evil in the eyes of the Lord. And because of that, six months into his reign as the new king, he himself is assassinated by a guy named Shalom, who then becomes the king. And so yes, technically, Yahweh did keep his word. Jehu did, in fact, have four generations on the throne, even though the last guy only got six months. But hey, it still counted, right? There's still four generations on the throne. Now, Shalom, this man who killed him, uh, who's now the new king, he only makes it one month before he himself is assassinated by someone else, a man named Menahem. Now, Menahem is a terrible king, and he too does what is evil in the sight of Yahweh. Uh, we even see in verse 16, he violently kills a bunch of people. And not only that, but it's during his reign that we begin to see some uh, foreboding or, or maybe even some foreshadowing signs of what is to come with Israel as it relates to uh, the empire of Assyria. For example, verse 19 tells us uh, that the king of Assyria came into the land of Israel and in response, Menahem gave Assyria a bunch of money in order to keep them at bay. Now, scholars debate whether this is what this financial arrangement is all about. Some think that uh, Israel was just hiring Assyria out as mercenaries to protect them from other enemies, whereas others argue, no, 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 no. They're paying Assyria tribute money in order to keep Assyria from destroying them. Now, personally, I, based on what the actual text says, I tend to lean towards that second interpretation. But either way, it's clear Israel is giving their lunch money away to the new bully on the block, which indicates just how vulnerable and weak they have become. Now, Menahem, we're told, reigns for 10 years, and then he dies, and his son, Pekiah, reigns in his place. 
Now, no surprise, he too does what is evil in the sight of Yahweh. And he reigns only two years before his own military captain, a guy with the name Pekah, assassinates him in order to take his place on the throne. Um, Pekah reigns 20 years. He too does what is evil in the Lord's eyes. And then verse 29 tells us that the king of Assyria shows back up on the scene. And this time, he's not only interested in money, but he's also interested in land. In fact, we see here in this passage that he takes quite a few of the northern towns away from Israel. And not only does he take the land, but he actually takes the people captive back to Assyria. In other words, what this is telling us is that the exile of Israel has already begun to take place. Um, commentator Dale Ralph Davis puts it like this. The presence and pressure of Assyria in Menahem's time should have unnerved those with eyes to see. But the invasion and deportation that occurred under Pekah shows Israel is one slight push away from total disaster. Now in verse 30, we find out that Pekah too is assassinated, this time by a guy named Hosea, who as it turns out, will be Israel's last and final king. However though, before we can learn about him and about Israel's fate, the narrative shifts back to Judah. Right? It's like a camera thing. It's just like, we're here, now we're here. You know, it's just doing that over and over. But what we see here is that uh, before we look at Judah, though, let me just reflect for a moment on what has just happened in the story with Israel. I mean, we just ran through about 32 or 33 years of Israel's history in the course of 23 verses. And what we saw there is that Israel had five kings, all of which who did evil in the Lord's sight, none of which departed from the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and four out of the five were brutally murdered and assassinated. And again, the sense you get here is that this part of Israel's history is so bloody. It's so bad. It's so depressing that the narrator is just like, let's just fast forward to the end of this story, right? Like, let's not waste a bunch of time looking at this. And unfortunately, as I just said, we are at the end of Israel's story. We just met and we were just introduced to their last and final king. And clearly, as we see in this chapter, Assyria is on the move and Israel is in its crosshairs. And really, it's just a matter of time until they come and totally and utterly destroy Israel. Again, on this point, Dale Ralph Davis writes this, Israel is in a race to ruin, running pell-mell to extinction. If civil stability is a divine gift, it has been withdrawn from Israel. Her own chaos is a sign that God is in the process of destroying her. Which is a little scary and humbling as we think about our own nation. And so again, unfortunately, this is where we are at in the story of Israel. But what about Judah? How's Judah doing during the same time period? Well, as I just said, at the end of chapter 15, the narrator pauses thing and kind of leaves us on a cliffhanger with Israel and now shifts the camera back to Judah. And what we find out is that right away after King Uzziah dies, his son Jotham begins to reign in his place for 16 years. Verse 34 tells us, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that his father Uzziah had done. Nevertheless, the high places were not removed. The people still sacrificed and made offerings on the high places. Now, that's about all the info we get about him in Kings. Um, Chronicles gives us just a little bit more. 
Uh, for example, 2 Chronicles 27, 6 says, Jotham grew powerful because he walked steadfastly before Yahweh, his God. And basically, if you keep reading, what that boiled down to was that he won quite a few uh, military victories, primarily against the Ammonites. And so again, he, Jotham here is an okay guy. He's a somewhat of a decent king. However, though, as we turn the page to chapter 16, we see that things are about to change in Judah. And so starting in verse 1, we read this. In the 17th year of Pekah, the son of Ramallah, Ahaz, the son of Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God, as his father David had done. But he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. He even burned his son as an offering according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And he sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. Whoa, that, that just took a dramatic turn for the worse. I mean, here is a king of Judah after two, uh, not perfect, but decent kings, right? His father and grandfather were like pretty decent guys. And the first thing we're told about him is that he did not do right in Yahweh's eyes as David had done. And then if that wasn't enough, that he is then compared to and, and even lumped in with Israel's kings when it says he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. And then if that weren't condemning enough, we're then told that he himself worshipped and sacrificed to the pagan Canaanite gods, including sacrificing his own son as an offering. I mean, this is, this is shocking. I mean, we're somewhat used to this kind of behavior in Israel, but not as much in Judah. In fact, Judah hasn't had someone this wicked since Queen Athaliah, who, if you remember from chapter 11, she's that wicked lady who killed her own grandsons in order to reign. And so, yes, Israel in the north is in utter ruin. They're in a state of chaos, and they're close to destruction. But as we've just seen, the grass is not greener on Judah's side. They are at times, and certainly during this moment, just as corrupt, just as idolatrous, and just as evil. And we definitely see that here with the reign of King Ahaz. In fact, not only does he do these things, but if we keep looking at chapter 16, we see, starting in verse 5, that Rezin, the king of Syria, which, uh, Syria, which is different than the nation Assyria, right? It's kind of confusing, too. Um, Rezin and Pekah, king of Israel, decide to join forces in order to attack Judah. Now, if you want some interesting homework, you can read Isaiah chapter 7 later on this week, because what we see there is that the Lord actually sent Isaiah the prophet to King Ahaz in order to tell him not to worry about the threat from Syria and Israel because the Lord was going to take care of them. Now, it's clear both from this chapter in 2 Kings and from Isaiah that Ahaz has no relationship with the Lord. And in fact, what we see here is that instead of turning to Yahweh during this time and repenting and seeking the Lord for help, he actually reaches out to Tiglath Pleaser, the infamous wicked king of Assyria. And so in verse 7 of chapter 16, Ahaz says this to Tiglath Pleaser. I am your servant and your son. Come up and rescue me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel who are attacking me. 
Now, not only is this pathetic that a king of Judah is asking a wicked pagan king for help instead of going to Yahweh, but the fact that he calls him and says to him, I am your servant and your son is even more messed up. You see, according to 2 Samuel 7, when Yahweh made a covenant with David about having a, a king on the throne forever from his lineage, uh, the Lord says there in verse 14, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. In other words, Judah's kings were to look to Yahweh as their father. And yet here is one of their kings looking to the king of Assyria as his father by saying, I am your son. As one commentator said, Ahaz repudiates the David covenant as he licks Tiglath-Pleaser's boots. Now, the king of Assyria isn't going to help him just because he said this flattering statement. No, it's going to take more than flattery, which is why we read next that Ahaz took all the silver and gold from the temple and even from his own house, and he sent it to the king of Assyria as a present. And again, commentator Dale Ralph Davis, he's just... If you're ever looking for commentaries on the Old Testament, this guy's amazing. Um, he captures this scene very sadly, but also humorously, as he summarizes King Ahaz's attitude here by putting uh, some words to the tune, my Jesus, I love thee. So here, here's what he writes. My tig, I bribe thee, you know I'm your man. For thee, Yahweh's promises I view as mere sand. You mighty oppressor, my savior art thou. If ever I needed you, dear Tiglath, tis now. And now again, that's kind of funny, but it's also super sad. I mean, it's hard to believe that this is where King David's descendants are at. That they are this far from Yahweh and from his word. However, though, if we keep reading, we see that uh, it does work. This plan works. In fact, in verse 9, we're told that the king of Assyria listened to Ahaz. He accepts the money, and then he immediately dispatches some troops down to Damascus, which is the capital of Syria, and he defeats the army, he kills their king, and he deports the people to Assyria. Well, after that, we're then told uh, next in the story that Ahaz goes up to Damascus in order to meet with the king of Assyria. And while he's there, he notices this impressive altar that is uh, built to a pagan god. And so what does he do? Well, he sends a model of it along with some blueprints down to Jerusalem so that Uriah the priest could make an exact replica of it and put that in the temple of the Lord. Now, if you keep reading, apparently this new piece of furniture just so inspires Ahaz that he actually goes on to do a little remodeling project in the temple. And so the first thing he does is he takes this new altar, this pagan altar, and he puts it in the exact place where the real altar, the one that Yahweh commanded to be built, was supposed to be. And then he takes Yahweh's altar and he kind of throws it off in the corner somewhere. The next thing he does is he starts hacking up and altering different items that are in the temple. In fact, the New Living Translation describes this like, like this in verse 17. Then the king removed the side panels and basins from the portable water carts. He also removed the great bronze basin called the sea from the backs of the bronze oxen and placed it on the stone pavement. In deference to the king of Assyria, he also removed the canopy that had been constructed inside the palace for use on the Sabbath day, as well as the king's outer entrance to the temple of the Lord. 
Now, all you have to do is to read in the law where it talks about the tabernacle or even more specifically in 1 Kings when it describes the very precise instructions for the temple and for the items in the temple to understand that Yahweh is definitely not okay with the idea of a remodel project in the temple, let alone a remodel out of deference to a wicked, awful human king. Right, like this is just farther evidence of how far Judah has fallen during this time period. Now chapter 16 ends, and as you can tell, it's been a depressing chapter and a depressing season in the nation of Judah. In fact, probably the only positive verse in the entire chapter is verse 20, which says, Ahaz slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. Right, like you know you're a bad king, a bad leader, when the best thing said about you is that you died. Now, we'll have to wait until chapter 18 to learn about his son, Hezekiah, who reigns in his place, because immediately now, the narrator shifts back one more time to Israel. And so picking it up in chapter 17, verse 1, it says this. In the twelfth year of Ahaz, king of Judah, Hoshea, the son of Elah, began to reign in Samaria over Israel. And he reigned nine years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, yet not as the kings of Israel who were before him. Against him came up Shalamanzer, king of Assyria. And Hoshea became his vassal and paid him tribute. But the king of Assyria found treachery in Hoshea, for he had sent messengers to So, king of Egypt, and had offered no tribute to the king of Assyria as he had done year by year. Therefore, the king of Assyria shut him up and bound him in prison. Then the king of Assyria invaded all the land and came to Samaria, and for three years he besieged it. In the ninth year of Hoshea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria, and he carried the Israelites away to Assyria and placed them in Hala and on the Habor, the river of Gozan, and in the cities of the Medes. Okay, so not only is there a new king in Israel, Hosea, but there's also a new king in, Sir in Assyria named Shalamanzer. And as we talked about from chapter 15, Assyria, for quite some time now, has been growing into a superpower in the region. And therefore, they are tightening the noose around Israel's neck. They've already wiped out Syria, which is just north of Israel, and now they have Israel in a vassal state, meaning basically Israel has to pay them money regularly in order to still exist as a nation. However, though, seemingly out of nowhere, Hosea loses his mind and he decides, you know what, forget Assyria. I'm not going to pay them anymore. Let me reach out to Egypt to see if they will come to my rescue. Well, as we just read, that, that plan did not go well. In fact, Shalamanzer moves right into action, and the first thing he does is he has Hosea arrested and thrown into prison. Next, his army then invades the land of Israel. They take most of the land and the cities right away, and then after that, they head towards the capital city of Samaria. And we're told there that they begin to besiege it, which is where you completely surround a city with your army. And not only does that cut them off from the outside world and from supplies and resources, but it also, at that moment, they begin to try to break through the city walls. And so Assyria was known to build ramps, or they would dig tunnels, or they would just batter the walls over and over again until they could break them down. And so basically, when a city is sieged, the people either give up because of starvation, 
and they let the invading army in, or the invading army eventually breaks down the walls and makes their way into the city. Now, we don't know for sure what happened here, but we do know that in the end, Assyria finally broke through. After three years, they finally take the city and they exile the people uh, out of Israel. And just for some background, what, what Assyria's main tactic when they would conquer another nation is they would capture its citizens and then they would exile them back to Assyria where they would then sprinkle them around the empire with other foreign people that they had already previously captured. And so not only would you be uprooted from your homeland, but you would then also be thrown in with a bunch of people who don't speak the same language as you, they don't eat the same food as you, and they certainly don't have the same culture as you or worship the same gods. And so because of that, these captured people from all these various nations, they most likely would just assimilate into Assyrian culture. And so certainly that's the case for most of the Israelites who were exiled, although, you know, most scholars think that a significant percentage of the Israelites would have just been killed during the siege itself, either through starvation or through the Assyrian army. And I know Israel's fall and exile is described for us here in only like one or two verses, but don't let the brevity of the description cause you to miss out on the magnitude of what just happened. I mean, 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel are wiped out and shipped off to exile, never to return again. In fact, scholars refer to them as the 10 lost tribes of Israel. You see, unlike Judah, when they get exiled years later, spoiler alert, uh, the people do return to the land, but no such return is ever indicated for the 10 tribes of Israel. Now, we do know that a, a small number of righteous people from those tribes had moved down to Judah years earlier, and so perhaps the Lord did keep alive a small remnant, but by and large, those families and those tribes never returned to the land. And it's tragic, and it's terrible, but as we'll see here in a moment, it was totally deserved. In fact, while the author may have only given us one or two verses to describe how Israel was exiled, he next gives us 15 verses describing why Israel was exiled. So pick it up here in verse 7. And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt and from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel and in the customs that the kings of Israel had practiced. And the people of Israel did secretly against the Lord their God things that were not right. They built for themselves high places in all their towns, from watchtower to fortified city. They set up for themselves pillars and ashram on every high hill and under every green tree. And there they made offerings on all the high places as the nations did whom the Lord carried away before them. And they did wicked things, provoking the Lord to anger. And they served idols of which the Lord had said to them, you shall not do this. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer saying, turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers and that I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. But they would not listen but were stubborn as their fathers had been who did not believe in the Lord their God. They despised his statutes and his covenants and they made with their fathers 
and the warnings that he gave them. They went after false idols and became false, and they followed the nations that were around them, concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not do like them. And they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God and made for themselves metal images of two calves and made an Asherah and worshiped all the host of heaven and served Baal. And they burned their sons and their daughters as offerings and used divination and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah only. Okay, so the author here very clearly makes the case and tells us exactly why all of this happened. And the first thing he points out in verse 7 is that they sinned against the very God who had rescued them from slavery in Egypt by fearing other gods. And I think what he's getting at here is that one of the biggest sins Israel committed over the hundreds of years uh, that they were in this place is that they were ungrateful to the very God who rescued them and saved them from slavery, and instead they looked to and feared other gods. As one guy put it, we must never forget that at its root, Israel's love affair with the nations is a rejection of grace. Amazing grace should have been met with lasting gratitude. And it's not just that they were ungrateful and indifferent towards Yahweh, like maybe the way a spoiled child would be towards his parents, but it's actually worse than that. No, they weren't just indifferent. No, they were idolaters. I mean, the first command Yahweh gave Israel in the Ten Commandments was this, I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of Egypt and out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And yet, one of the first accusations brought against them here in 2 Kings 17 is that they broke this commandment over and over again. But it wasn't just that they feared or had respect for these other gods. No, it was worse than that. I mean, they didn't just break the first commandment. No, they broke the second commandment as well, which says this, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. You see, verse nine clearly tells us that they built high places in all their towns. Verse 10 says that they set up for themselves pillars and ashram on every high hill and under every green tree. Verse 12 says that they served the idols. Verse 16 says they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God and made for themselves two metal images of calves. It also says there that they made an Asherah and worshiped all the hosts of heaven and even Baal. Verse 17 says they burned their sons and daughters as offerings to these false gods and that they used divination and sought omens. I mean, look, the reality is when you read all of this, what you see is that basically Israel has become just like the other pagan nations around them and even like the ones God tried to destroy and drive out of the land in the first place. And what this shows us is that even though Israel was God's chosen people, because they rejected Yahweh and have become evil like the other nations in Canaan, they too will suffer the same fate as those nations. You see, a lot of people read the Old Testament and they're bothered by the Canaanite conquest in places like Deuteronomy and Joshua. And some have even tried to make it seem like God and, and or the, the Israelites were racist and that it was some sort of ethnic cleansing or ethnic genocide, which is just ridiculous and not true. 
And the reason we know it's not true is because, number one, the Bible is super clear that God loves the nations. He loves all people and all races. But not only that, we also know it's true because his own people suffer the same fate and consequences as the Canaanite nations before them. You see, Yahweh chose Israel and he set them apart. And because of that, they were to be holy, meaning they were to be distinct and set apart from the other nations in order to be a light and a witness to them. But instead, in the end, Israel became just like them. And the thing about it that makes it even worse is that God was so patient. He was so gracious towards them. Not only did he give them hundreds of years to repent, but he also sent warning after warning and prophet after prophet, and yet the people still did not return to him. In fact, verse 13 even says that explicitly, yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer saying, turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with the law that I commanded your fathers that I sent to you by my servants, the prophets, but they would not listen, but were stubborn. You know, this week I decided to read through some of the minor prophets and specifically the book of Amos and Hosea. And both of those men prophesied during the last days of Israel. And from their writings, it's so clear that God deeply loved the people of Israel. And because he loved them, he tried to warn them over and over again. For example, one chapter in Amos that blew me away this week was Amos 4. And all throughout the chapter, Yahweh lists off these various consequences and punishments that he sent Israel's way in order to warn them and to wake them up. In fact, five different times in the chapter, the Lord mentions a specific consequence and a specific warning, but then he repeats this refrain, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. And again, the sense you get from both Amos and Hosea is that God is heartbroken about this. In fact, Hosea, uh, God compares uh, Israel to uh, an, adult, an idolatrous wife who keeps running away to other men. Like Moshe the beetle in the opening story, Yahweh warned Israel over and over again. He desperately tried to wake them up and to get their attention. He gave them plenty of time and opportunity to repent and to change and to turn back towards him. But in the end, they were unwilling. And so this is the end of the northern kingdom, Israel. And so to close here, let me just try to draw out some lessons that I think you and I can learn from all of this. You see, according to 1 Corinthians 10, 11, when it's talking about the Old Testament scriptures, that is what you and I are supposed to do. I know Andy Stanley would love for us to unhitch from the Old Testament, but we're not going to do that. We believe that all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable, as I prayed earlier, for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. 1 Corinthians 10, 11 says this, these things happen to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. And so what can we learn here? What kind of lessons or warnings do these chapters teach us? Well, there are probably dozens of things they teach us, but let me just give you three big ones that I think we see here. The first real lesson that I think we learn is very simply this, bad leadership has real consequences. 
You see, all throughout our three chapters today, and even throughout uh, both First and Second Kings, we learn over and over again that the decisions, choices, and actions of leaders affect more than just themselves. You see, godly leaders who make good choices and who exhibit righteous behavior lead their people to human flourishing. However, though, the opposite is also true. Ungodly leaders who make bad choices and who exhibit unrighteous behavior lead their people to chaos and destruction. Proverbs 29.2 in the Amplified Bible says this, When the righteous are in authority and become great, the people rejoice. But when the wicked man rules, the people groan and sigh. I mean, one thing that's so striking about the book of Kings is that it goes out of its way to show you that every single one of Israel's kings were guilty of continuing the sins of Jeroboam's son of Nebat. Now, in case you forget who Jeroboam was, he was Israel's first king after the kingdom split in two. And he was a terrible king. And one of the worst decisions he ever made was to invent a new religion by which he created two golden calves and said, behold, your gods who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now, Jeroboam wasn't the first leader to introduce idol worship in Israel because Solomon had already done that previous to him, but he was the first to institutionalize and mandate idol worship. And again, when you walk through each one of Israel's kings after him, they are all compared to him and they are all condemned for not turning away from his sin and his idolatry. And so whether we talk about a father, a boss, a politician, or a pastor, bad leadership has real consequences, which means you and I should both pray for good and godly leaders over our lives, and we should at varying levels hold people accountable who don't measure up. And so that would be one lesson that I think we see here. A second lesson that I think we see is that you and I become like what we worship. You see, I kind of skipped over it earlier, but in 2 Kings 17, 15, in the middle of the verse, there's this line that says, they went after false idols and became false. But I like how the New Living trans, or the NIV translates it. It says, they followed worthless idols and themselves became worthless. You see, you see whether we like it or not, we become what we worship. And the thing is, these idols, these gods that the Israelites worshipped, they weren't neutral or harmless gods. No, these gods were greedy, they were oppressive, they, were, they represented sexual immorality. Uh, worst of all, they uh, had child sacrifice as part of their worship. And so all we have to do is to look at what kind of gods Israel was worshipping, and then look at their behavior, and what we see is the two things match. And unfortunately for us, that's not just a them problem or, a, or a, you know, an ancient problem for way back then. No, this is a human problem. This is our problem as well. In other words, this is a universal principle in the world. Human beings become what they worship. Which actually brings us to the last lesson I want to draw out this morning, and that is this. Without grace, the spirit, and a new heart, human beings are incapable of true worship and obedience to God, their creator. You see, in some ways, both kings and the entire Old Testament is a case study proving that human beings can't follow the Lord without his direct help and intervention, which means you and I are hopeless unless he shows us grace. You see, we've mentioned before in this series that the end of Deuteronomy, specifically chapters 27 through 30, are really important background and context to understanding what's happening in the book of Kings. 
And again, if you're not familiar with those chapters, basically what they are is a reminder to the Israelites right before they go into the promised land of the terms of the covenant. Blessings and prosperity for obedience to the law and curses and judgment and ultimately exile for disobedience to the law. And when you read those chapters, it's really clear where all this is headed. Israel is going to break the covenant and therefore they are going to be exiled which is why, chapter or why in chapter 30 we read this. When all these blessings and curses I have set before you come on you and you take them to heart wherever the Lord your God disperses you among the nations, and when you and your children return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and with all your soul, according to everything I command you today, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where he scattered you. Skipping down to verse 6. The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. You see, later on, the prophets will pick up on this theme, is, which is why Jeremiah and Ezekiel both start talking about this idea of a new heart, a circumcised heart. And they even talk about this idea of a new covenant coming one day. And what we see in the Old Testament is that God really does deeply desire to have a covenant people who love him and who love others. And yet, as the Old Testament makes clear, this is impossible unless God transforms and remakes the human heart. You see, in order to follow God, our hearts don't need to be just remodeled a little bit or tweaked here and there. No, we need a new heart. And not only do we need a new heart, but we also need a new covenant. The Mosaic covenant is slavery. It leads to death. No, we need a new covenant that brings life. And the good news for you and the good news for me today is that all of that was made available in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ. You see, the old covenant said we are accepted by God based on our performance and our record. Whereas the new covenant says we are accepted by God based on Jesus's performance and Jesus's record, which is again why the New Testament calls this good news. And not only are our sins forgiven because of Jesus's atoning death, but we also now have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. And it's the Holy Spirit who gives you and I the power and the grace and even the desire that we need in order to obey and follow God. See, just a few minutes ago, I talked about this universal principle which says we become like what we worship. And certainly the New Testament writers understand this, which is why the Apostle Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians 3.18. He says, and we all with an unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. See, I think what Paul is getting at here is that one of the main components of sanctification, or in other words, growing in Christ's likeness or in holiness, is worship. As you and I, as we behold Jesus, as we worship him through the power of the Spirit, we are actually transformed and changed, and we actually become more and more like him. We love God with all of our hearts. We love others as ourselves. And so let's take some time now, and let's do that. 
I'm going to pray for us, but then let's stand and let's worship Jesus together and allow the Holy Spirit to mold and to shape our hearts into Christ's image. Because that's what this is all about. This is all about you and I becoming more and more like Jesus, becoming the kind of people who love God and who love others. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, in some ways it's... <laughs> It's depressing reading about the uh, Israelites and just how prone their hearts were, to, uh, were uh, to wander away from you, Lord. And Lord, we confess we still have that same proclivity, Lord. We are tempted to be ungrateful. Lord, we are tempted to forget all of your uh, miraculous uh, wonders in our lives, Lord. We're, forget, we're tempted to forget how you saved and rescued us from our sin and from death. But thank you, Lord, that we now, is, if we know you, Lord, if we're in relationship with you, we have the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit changes our hearts. He reminds us of all that we have in Christ. And he helps us worship. We can't even love you, Lord, without your help. That's how pathetic we are. We can't even love you without you. And so, Father, as we sing here, I pray that your Spirit would enable us to behold Jesus. And that as we look at him, as we worship him, we would become more and more like him. And so we give this rest of this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.